I didn't intend for it to be this, but this might feel like a scraping tonight. I'm just saying. Hey, but before we get there, we just wanted to create a moment in our service, right? Our kids are, are so awesome here at City Life. They've just, they've been so patient. We, we've come back to church, but they haven't yet, right? There's all of the kids' ministries that, that are happening here that create opportunity for them to build relationship with each other, all the time they have to learn about God's word in a way that's relevant for them and crafts and so many kids, they look forward to Saturday. They've not, they've not had that for so long. And so we just thought, you know, for, we, we've, we've restarted play outside, but even on a rainy day like this, that's not possible. So uh, I know a lot of families with kids aren't able to come, especially when the weather's like this because play outside's not happening. But if you're, if you're at home watching right now, go get your kids, put them in front of the TV because we've got a little kids moment that we prepared for you. It's the cartoon version of the story of the Good Samaritan. So instead of me reading it to you tonight, which we're gonna get to at the end of the message, we thought let's, let's learn it again or hear it for the first time through the lens of a child. And then also my hope is that if you are a parent of young children, it's going to give you something to talk with them about, to connect what you learned to the message, to connect with them in a way that they can understand. Let's watch together. All the kids who can read were looking at the frame of the inn and the rack that said maps. They're like, what are those? Follow the blue line. Follow the blue line. We're going to come back to that in a minute because I believe that the, the parable of the good... One of the things we try to do here at City Life is help you connect the Bible. There's an interconnectedness to Scripture. And so many times we go through life and we read portions of it and forgetting one that it has many writers, but only ultimately one author. And, and when you begin to read the Bible through that lens and through that filter, you, you begin to find an interconnectedness that maybe you didn't know was there before. And as we're going to show tonight, we're going to end up with the, with the parable of the Good Samaritan because we're going to do a deep dive into 2 Timothy 1.7. And I hope that you'll see by the time we get to the end that, that there's a beautiful pairing, I think, that the Holy Spirit intends us to find between that verse and this parable. But before we get there, let me just speak a word about the series. Pastor Justin writes such an amazing job launching this series for us last weekend. If you haven't watched that yet, I hope you go onto the YouTube channel and watch or go to the website and uh, listen to the, the, the podcast. But just as kind of a nod to what's going on in our nation, they're, I'm gonna, I'm, they're not going to put it yet. I'm going to show you a slide. It could be one of the scariest pictures you've seen. If you've got children at home, you might want to hide their eyes. But uh, there, there's a controversy that's taking place in our nation that's tearing us apart, and it's this. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So I just need to know right now, before we move on in life together, by a show of hands, are you eating the banana on the left because this is your perfect banana? Could I see a show of hands? I just need to know. Oh my Lord, there are. It is true. Brendan, is your hand up right there? Wow, you're a spotted banana person. All right, now how many people are on the right? Just right, this is the goats and the sheep, I'm just saying. Oh, there we go, there we go. Hannah Nowatney, who, Hannah Nowatney, Hannah Godwin, Hannah Godwin is the director of our preschool and, and her character is impeccable except for this one thing. We, we've, we have this ongoing debate on what a perfect banana is. And she sent me this text this week saying this is the perfect banana. And so this morning when I wandered down into the kitchen for my cup of coffee, I saw this and I said, I need to send this to her to bring her some, you know, correction <laughs> for her perspective. Now, now we laugh at this, right? But this is where we are as a nation. 
We, we are convinced that we are right, and we are having an impossible time understanding the perspective of others. Let me read you a couple of these quotes. This one is by Cal Thomas. I believe his book that I read years ago was called Blinded by Might. It's a phenomenal book. It says, whenever the church cozies up to political power, it loses sight of its all-important mission to change the world from the inside out. In blurring the lines between politics and Christianity, the religious right has traded the only power that can truly change America, the gospel's power to transform hearts. Come on. And then a more contemporary author of our day, David Platt, writes this, the genius of wrong. Building the right church depends on using all of the wrong people. Building the right church depends on using all of the wrong people. And for you, wrongness might be determined by political affiliation and candidate choice. I want to talk about this verse. If you've been a part of Christianity for any amount of time, you're probably familiar with this verse. It's in 2 Timothy 1.7. If you were a part of the church growing up, it might be a verse that you had been given at some point to memorize. I have it on the screen in both the New Living Translation and the New King James Version. It is an interesting verse because depending on which translation you read, the, the, the last word in there often changes. And the reason why it often changes because in the Greek language, language, the word is sophronismos. And it is a word that is elusive to us in the English language. There is a, pre- a precision to Greek, which is one of the reasons it's part of the idea and the belief of what's called the fullness of time, that Jesus came and scripture was written at just the right time. And I think that one of the right times, was it was in a world where the academic language was Greek because again of how precise this language is. This word sophronismos eludes us a little bit because we, we, we don't oftentimes put together as one complete thought this idea of of thinking and acting. And so phronismos means just that. It means that when you think a certain way, there should be actions that follow in the good. Meaning that I shouldn't just think it. If I'm thinking it, I should also act upon it. That's why sometimes you see that the, the, the text will, sometimes as you see on the screen here, it will talk about self-discipline, which is more about action. And then sometimes other translators will say, no, I, I like the idea of sound mind because that's focusing more on where the action begins, which is in your thought process. And this is such a unique word because it's saying, no, 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 it's all one motion. I'm thinking the right way and then that should flow into acting the right way. You'll also find it in some translations, judgment, which is how I'm going to refer to it tonight because I think that's as close as we get to the English language. I'm going to use it later. I'm also going to talk about it as wisdom because I think in our modern day language, I think wisdom also carries that connotation of thinking rightly and also both acting rightly. This is an interesting verse too because I believe that the words, especially three of them, which is often the focus, are an actual... Sequence with a causal relationship and not just a list of three things. It's important that we understand that in order for the last thing to happen, the first two must. See, if you, if, if you don't see them as interrelated, what you will begin to find is that people who think the right thing but don't act, we call that cowardice. And that people that act without thinking, we call that foolishness. But Paul says to Timothy, as Christians, sophronismos, 
should be the word that describes us and speaks to us. But then he says that there is a word that comes before it, which is love, and then there is a word that comes before that, which is power. And I think the Holy Spirit, inspiring Paul to write this verse to young Timothy, this young man that he's mentoring in the faith, but not just the faith, but mentoring in ministry, that Timothy at some point, right, is one of the people that God has identified through Paul to raise up to continue on his work. He's trying to help him to understand something about the interconnectedness between these three things. There's a chart that's going to pop up on the screen that I want you to see. See, I believe that this idea of power is telling us that one of the reasons why we're given power, which means that there is an inherent ability within us to choose. See, part of the human experience is that you have a choice. See, one of the things that makes us different from so many other living things in the world is that they're driven by instinct and they don't have the ability of self-control or the ability to choose. But Paul here is saying as human beings, we have a choice, which means that we're never free to say I couldn't help it. We're never free to say that someone made me do it. Whether it be a bad influence or the devil himself, Paul's saying just just give that up right now. You always have the ability to choose. You have the power to choose. Genesis 4, 7, it goes all the way back to the beginning of time. Listen to what God says. You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, he's talking about your will, you have a choice. Then watch out, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. God's saying, you have the ability to choose. Stop making excuses for yourself and exercise the will that I've given to you. In the Greek, it's dunamis, the power that is inherent within a person. And I love that the Holy Spirit inspires Paul for the very next word to be love. Paul is saying, you have the power to always choose to be loving. You have the power to always think and act in a way that is in the best interest of other people and yourself. See, there is a sequence to the list that we're given. I think we find the connection here in Proverbs 3, 3 and 4. It says, do not let kindness and truth leave you because they work together in tandem. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. What's he talking about here? He's saying you've got to choose to live this way. He doesn't say let me bind it around your neck. He doesn't say let me write it on the table of your heart. He says you do it. So you will find favor and good repute, which is good reputation, in the sight of God and man. God, that's heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. I think there's a powerful connection there. This isn't in my notes, just in the moment with the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes when we're praying that the Lord's Prayer, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I think oftentimes God says back to us, okay, let's start with you. Let's start with you. I should always pursue what is in the best interest of others and me. What we talked about in the series that preceded this, Apolitikos, menacing, we introduced a chart. I hope you familiarize yourself because it's going to become part of the language of our church, this idea of the well-being line that God created us to walk along. So the well-being lines for people, listen to this, can be compatible even when not identical. The well-being line for people can be compatible even when not identical, 
because of what comes next. God gives us love to instruct our judgment. If you're a parent, you understand the difference between these two and how it's vital that they work in tandem with each other. If you're only ever loving agape, but abandon sophronismos, which is both to think and to act as God would expect to you, if, if you only have love, which what I would call this is the emotion trap, because you always want your kids to like you. Don't fall into that trap. If you're going to parent your children well, you've got to be willing to be not liked for the, most of your life. If you leave out Sophronismos and only move forward in life as a parent with agape, then you think that you're giving your child affirmation and affection, but really what you're doing is you're creating an environment in your home and in their heart for permissiveness. If you only operate from the perspective of Sophronismos, this, this idea of, of thinking right and acting right, then, then you're gonna create an environment in your home that is callous. You'll be legalistic. Paul is saying you have the power to do both well and that they instruct one another. The power to both love and act in good judgment. That's why those arrows go back and forth between those last two circles. They serve one another. They hold each other in a healthy tension. Romans 12, two says this, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God, what? Transform you into a new person by what? By changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. God has given us a great power to choose. And we can always choose to be loving and loving in a way that is still boundaried by the wisdom of Scripture. Again, love without judgment drifts towards only affection and affirmation, while judgment without love drifts only towards callousness. You can think of it this way, which is the saying that is going to come onto the screen. Biblical wisdom is always loving and love is always biblically wise. Biblical wisdom is always loving, and love is always biblically wise. I believe that this text here in 2 Timothy 1.7 is a moral mandate. It is not just a promise. I think so many of us that grew up in the church, we, 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 we love this verse. It's a, a verse that people have prayed over us. It's a verse that we use to encourage ourselves and we view it as a promise and it is most certainly a promise, but I want you to see tonight it is not just a promise, it is a moral mandate. It is an expectation that God has for you and for me, that we will exercise the power that he has given to us to be both loving and in good judgment at the same time. And then they do not have to be mutually exclusive. Now I'm going to push a pause button on this sermon. It's like when you're watching TV and they come in and say, we interrupt this program, this regularly scheduled program for, for some type of breaking news. This doesn't fit into the sermon. But as I was studying this text, I had such a sense that there was going to be somebody here tonight or somebody watching from home that needed to hear this. So you just put a pause 
a moment, and I want to pick up with 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 11. I wasn't sure whether or not this was supposed to be another sermon for another time, but again, I, I just had such a sense. This is for somebody here. Verse 8, so never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord, and don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time. Paul here is talking about the gospel, that Jesus died for you and me so that we could be forgiven, so that we, we could be reconciled relationally to God and also reconciled to his great purpose and plan for our lives. Listen to what it says, to show us his grace through Jesus Christ, because it's through him and him alone that we can find forgiveness of our sin. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way of life and immortality through the good news. Come on. Here it comes in verse 11. And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. I have such a sense that there's somebody here tonight and you have no idea what your verse 11 is. God has chose me to be a, and it's a blank for you. And what I believe that God wants you to hear tonight is that you will never understand what that fill in the blank is until you yield to those verses that come before, which is to yield your life to Christ in every, every way. I had such a sense tonight that some, some, somebody is bargaining with Jesus your, your bargain with him is that I will follow you once you tell me what your plan is for me. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. You've got to trust me. You've got to be willing to put the full weight of your life on me. It might be that as you look back onto the story of your life, you cannot find a moment in time where you've actually made a vow of devotion to Christ. And Jesus says to you tonight, it starts there. If you want to know what your verse 11 is, then you've got to get busy with 8 through 10. We've got to yield ourselves to who Jesus is, embrace him as our savior, commit our lives to him fully and completely, and trust that he's going to fill in that blank for us in time. You want to know what your purpose is, and Jesus is saying, beyond what your purpose is, I want you to know who you are in me first. You've got to find your relationship with him. So Father, I pray for whoever that person is, whether they're in this room tonight or whether they're watching at home. If maybe this is the very conversation they've been having with you this week. They'd want so desperately to fill in that blank and what they don't realize, they're wrestling with the wrong question. I pray, God, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I have such a sense that you just, you feel a sense of release right now for whoever you are. You feel it right now. It's like you're letting go of something. And I pray, Father, that in that place of release, there would be a surrender and there would be a peace that would come to them. It's like that feeling, God, that they've been holding their breath for too long and they just need to take something in. And we know that that is the breath of heaven itself. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody said together. Amen. If that's you, I hope that you come up and talk with me at the end of the service. If you're at home, then you can reach out to us. We're easy to get a hold of. All right, back to our regularly scheduled program.
the moral dilemma. We're defining this idea of moral dilemma in many ways. I wanted, before I got into the idea of moral dilemma, I wanted to set it up by talking about 2 Timothy 1.7 because you need to understand the moral mandate before you, I think, can understand part of this aspect of the moral dilemma. Pastor Justin gave us a definition for it last week, and I think what you're going to find in this series, the idea of the moral dilemma, at least how we intend to, 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 to express it in this series, that there, there are many sides to this moral dilemma. It's complex. So let's bring it to our moment, can we? So what am I supposed to do when I follow 2 Timothy 1.7 and so does someone else who was also a devoted follower of Jesus. And we end up with two different conclusions. You follow me? When we use our free will, the power inside of us to choose, and we choose what we believe is in the best interest of ourselves and in the best interest of others, and, and, and we're convinced that it falls squarely within the boundaries of the wisdom of Scripture that both agape and sophronismas are being held in the perfect tension by the outcome and the choice that we've taken. What do we do when our outcome is completely different from the outcome of someone else? who would say the very same thing about their choice. And I would start here. You've got to believe this as a devoted follower of Christ, that relationships are more important than ideas. Relationships are more important than ideas. So many people right now, some people that you know, some people that I know, in, in their defense of righteousness, they've become unrighteous with their attitude towards other people. Right? In, their, in their stand for righteousness, they've become unrighteous. I'm going to throw up a list. I'm not going to teach about these in great length. There's this slide or the next slide. It's a nod. We, we talked about these in depth in our summer series when we talked about the, uh, the, um, the disagreement that took place between Paul and, and, and Barnabas. It was the sermon about uh, Silas and John Mark. This is important that you understand, this idea of mutual respect, self-awareness, and accountability. These three things are important. You've, you've got to believe in these three things if you're going to protect relationships that are important to you. And if you abandon any one of these, you will find relationships will begin to fracture. Mutual respect. I don't agree with you, but I see how you got there. And if you can't see how they got there, then you keep trying until you do. And maybe at the end of the day, you can't see how they got there, but that's okay too, but put in some effort. You want people to understand how you got to where you got, so put some effort in for other people. Mutual respect, self-awareness. If you're not willing to at least be open to the possibility that you're the one that's wrong, then yeah, we all know what that's called. And a word that's appropriate here in church is arrogance. It's fascinating, isn't it? People, when they talk about the gospel, love to talk about the depravity of man. They love to talk about the divinity of Christ. They love to talk about our fallen nature. And we agree with all of those things because they are true. Until it's time for them to postulate their point of view and perspective and all of a sudden they are not flawed. They, they take on divinity as if 
they're even remotely divine and as if they're not a sinner. You have to be willing to be open to the possibility when you're dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm not talking about biblical absolutes in defense of the world. We, 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 we don't doubt the truthfulness of those things. I'm talking about within the boundary of scripture, when we find ourselves at odds with each other, within the body of Christ, we have to be open to the possibility that maybe our point of view is the one that needs to change. Accountability. Belonging to a church family, we have both permission-giving and pause-giving relationships. Again, you can listen to the sermon series if you want to learn more about these things. These three are key if you're going to protect and guard relationships, I believe that you should guard and protect. Relationships that are worth saving. Again, we talked about this list. If you share a common sacred purpose, which you do if you're in church with someone, right? We, we all call this our church home because we, have a, we feel like God has called us together to a common sacred purpose. Who are we to fracture those relationships over a disagreement that we have? We take that disagreement you with me? And we let that transcend the calling that God used to bring us together. If you find Christian character in one another, if there is fruit of ministry, when you look at that person's life and see that they have given their life to the sharing of the gospel and the building of the church, if you can see these three things in a person, then I would say to you, fight for that relationship. Don't run from it. Second Timothy 1.7, here it is, the moral failure. When I am being, dis you ready for a scrape? Here it comes. When I am being dismissive, I should have brought my wire brush right up here with me. When I am being dismissive of the convictions of others that are different from mine and also refusing to empathize with their concerns, especially when I don't share their circumstance, that's a moral failure. It's a moral failure. You are violating 2 Timothy 1.7. When I suffer from the moral failure, I never experience the moral dilemma. See, when I get to another definition, which I'm gonna give you in just a minute, of what this idea of a moral dilemma is, for some of you, you've not felt it yet. And what I would say to you with respect is because you are guilty of a moral failure. I think our idea of moral fail failure as Christians is a definition that's far too narrow because we only use definitions of moral failure that embody the sins of other people. Mm -hmm. That's another paint scrape right there. Next slide, moral dilemma. When I realized that two children, that, the, that two children of God, devoted followers of Jesus in an election cycle can be completely true to 2 Timothy 1.7 and cast completely different ballot. <gasps> Stop it. Somebody just ripped their shirt. They're looking for the ash to put on their face. Old Testament jokes right there. Old man, Old Testament jokes. Is there any burlap around here? I need to put some burlap on. Listen to me. Stop confusing irreconcilable ideas with irreconcilable relationships. Just stop it. Just stop it. We understand that sometimes ideas are irreconcilable, but stop letting those irreconcilable ideas result in irreconcilable relationships. It doesn't just sadden God. I'm telling you, it makes him angry. Reaching back to Apolitikos and the menacing sermon, you want to see the lion side of Jesus and not just the lamb, then you do this. You do this. 
Do you feel morally superior to others because of the ballot you intend to cast? Because if you do, I would say to you, be careful. Be careful. Do you feel morally superior to others because of the ballot that you intend to cast? If you do, you be careful. You be careful. Because Jesus does not like people who view themselves as being morally superior to other people who are just as an important part of the family of God as you are. He does not like it. He despises it. It makes him angry. And you might see a side of Jesus that doesn't look a whole lot like a cartoon. Luke 10, 25 to 37. I'm not going to read it to you for the sake of time. You saw it wonderfully illustrated for children up there. Understand that Samaritans were looked down upon by Jewish people because they, the Samaritans were believed to be ethnically inferior, culturally inferior, doctrinally inferior. Because when the Assyrians came in hundreds of years prior and conquered the northern kingdom, as what empires often did, they took away tens of thousands of Jews and dispersed them throughout their empire. And then they replaced them with tens of thousands of other people from around the world. This is how empires would often assimilate all of their people together. Now, if you were a devout Jewish person, you understood that in the Mosaic law, you were forbidden to marry someone of another nationality, not because God is biased and, bigot, and, and, and bigoted, it's because he was trying to protect the purity of Judaism. And he understood that if you intermarried within countries, that there would be an assimilation of religions. And so God said, don't do that, because he was trying to protect the purity of Judaism because of the prophetic picture it is of the coming of Christ. But the people in the northern kingdom are surrounded by all these people from all over the world, and all of a sudden they began to intermarry. And then over generations and generations and generations, it produced this, this ethnic group of people that was a mixed race. And so Jewish people who were not product of a mixed race looked at them as being inferior. And Jesus didn't like it. So he gives us this parable. Can, can, let me just, can I just modernize this parable you, for you just for a minute? Paint scrape, paint scrape, paint scrape. The effect of this parable then would be the same today if I showed up at the Republican National Convention and in my speech told a story that made Nancy Pelosi the hero. That's the equivalence of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. It would be the same as if I showed up at the Democratic National Convention and in my speech told a story that made Mitch McConnell the hero. You don't understand the gasps that started out Actually, I don't think they were gasped when they started out. I think they were gasped at the end. I think, because the majority of the people in that crowd would have been Jewish, when Jesus starts out and talks about a Samaritan, they're thinking to themselves, let's, if the priest and the Levite didn't do what was right, he's going to give it to the Samaritans here, baby, because they are bad people. And I think the gasp came when they began to realize that Jesus chose the people that they opposed the most to be the hero of the story. See, this story isn't just about doing the right thing, although we're going to get to that in just a minute as we're wrapping things up. 
It's not just about the person who did the right thing. It's about the person that he picked to illustrate the right thing. And it was the kind of person that they all despised, that they could not get into their mind that it would be possible that God loved these people just as much as he did them. You see, Jesus is giving us a preview of 2 Timothy 1.7, even though it hasn't been written down here yet. See, the, the New Testament hadn't been written yet down here, but it was just waiting to be written because it came from the Holy Spirit. I think Jesus is saying, how about I give you a parable that's going to help you understand what Paul will one day say to young Timothy. Let me just, if I were to write some commentary on this parable, it would sound like this. They all exercised the power of their will, but only one did so in love. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus puts each of them in a position of choice. They were alone, meaning no pressure from others. All three of them had the same opportunity to choose power, will, dunamis. They each had the opportunity to choose an interest to serve, agape, love. I would argue that the priest and the Levite actually ultimately didn't even serve their own best interest even though it looks like that way on the surface. See, whenever we act in love and compassion and empathy towards others, we also serve our own future best interest because we're making the same world that we live in a better place. Judgment. Jesus pours it on in the end, doesn't he? The Samaritan doesn't just provide first aid. He takes him to an end, puts money on credit for his recovery with the promise to pay for all the expenses if it takes longer than expected. Jesus here is setting the standard for what it looks like to think and act biblically by God's standards. It's going to require sacrifice, people. Serving and caring for those who we oppose ideologically. I'm going to leave you with these three verses. James 4, 11. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law, which is another way of saying God's wisdom. But your job is to obey the law, right? To obey wisdom, to walk in sophronismas, not to judge. This is where, right, he's talking about wisdom, judgment, and love holding each other in a healthy tension. It's right here. And not judge whether it applies to you. I got this off of Jesus' Facebook page just today. <laughs> Copied and pasted it right in. He tweeted on Wednesday, 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 24. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel. I love that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to put this in here, right? Because he knew if he stopped at verse 23, people would say, well, my argument's not foolish, right? So he says, oh, okay, okay. Even if your argument isn't foolish, you better not be quarrelsome as you present it to people. 24, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel but must be kind to everyone. See, this idea of agape and sophronismos is all throughout scripture. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. He did a video on TikTok on Thursday of Proverbs 15, 28. Did I say that right, David? Oh, thank you. 
That uh, yeah means it was close enough for old 53-year-old white guy. I'm not sure what that means. I'll take it. I'll take it. Proverbs 15, 28. Listen to this. The heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. Mm. Just let that sink in for a minute. The heart of the godly thinks carefully before speaking. But the mouth of the wicked overflows with evil words. Biblical wisdom is always loving and love is always biblically wise. Stand with me. Father, if there's gonna be endless Chick-fil-A in heaven, we also know that there's only gonna be green bananas there too. God, help us to make room for people in our lives in the way that you made room for us in yours. Help us to make room for people in our lives in the same way that you made room for us in yours. Undeserving. Having nothing to do with who we are, but everything to do with who we would become. Help us. Forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive me for my arrogance and for my hubris and my short-temperedness for being opinionated for being quarrelsome for thinking too highly of myself for not putting others before me help us help us help us lead the way Help us show the world the way instead of what we're doing right now, which is, which is showing the world the way that, we sh- that they shouldn't go by the depravity of our own attitudes and actions. God, you didn't put the church in the world to be the example of what not to do. You put us in the world because we're supposed to reflect your glory. We're supposed to reflect your glory. We're supposed to be salt and light, not darkness and destruction. Help us. Father, I pray that there would be a revival in our land, not in the world, but in the church. Because if there's gonna be a revival in the world, if there's gonna be a revival in the world, It's got to start in our hearts. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Lord, that's the first thing that you put on the list. We we, we cry for revival because we see the depravity of people when we don't even see the darkness of our own hearts. Forgive us, forgive us. Help us to look within so we can minister without on the outside of the four walls of this sacred place that you bring us to to transform us and change us 
so we can go out and be your hands and your feet to a dying world. In Jesus' name, come on, everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week. Don't forget, if you can, don't hang out in here. If you wanna hang out, if you could do that outside so we can turn this space over for the church that's coming on Sunday.